Today we are continuing our series that we've been in the last several weeks. We're calling it, Who Does Jesus Love? And we have seen some really happy endings to a lot of these stories as we've been looking at these vignettes in the life of Jesus, of him interacting with different people in the gospel narratives. And we've had some happy endings. I mean, we saw a guy who had been lame for 38 years suddenly get healed and walk We saw a couple whose wedding celebration that could have been a disaster um, ends up being rescued, saved by Jesus. Last week we saw a notorious crook and politician who gets radically saved. Some happy endings. Today, though, is not one of those happy endings. Today our story has a sad ending, but it has some incredible implications for us personally, corporately. So we're in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Follow along as I read. Now as he was going out on the road, one came running and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, and honor your father and mother. And he answered and said to him, teacher, all of these things I have kept from my youth. And then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. I want you to note that. Looking at him, loved him, and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So here we see this man that comes to Jesus with this question about eternal life. And I want us, first of all, to consider this man. Matthew, in his gospel account, tells us that this was a young man. Mark tells us here in verse 22 that he was a man who had great possessions. Matthew says he had great wealth. Not just possessions, but he was, he was a wealthy guy. And in Luke's gospel, it tells us that he was a ruler. So in a lot of your Bibles, the title of this story is The Rich Young Ruler. That's what this guy was. He was rich, he was young, he was a ruler, he was a man of position, he was a man of power, he was a man of prestige. We might call him in our vernacular today that this guy, he had the whole package. He was successful, he was capable, he was religious. We might even say he was a man of faith. He was the kind of guy that most dads would probably love if he showed up wanting to date your daughter. I mean, picture it. He pulls up in his brand new sports car. He's well-dressed. He's well-mannered. He's respectful. And dad is thinking, man, this guy's a catch. Kind of reminds me of a story of a young girl in her mid-20s whose parents were kind of pressuring her to get married. And she hadn't been dating for a while, but she finally meets this one young guy that she really liked. He was smart, he was good-looking, he was a respectful guy, and, and he was funny, and she, she liked that. He made her laugh. After a few dates, she decided she was going to bring him home to meet her parents. 
And they had dinner that night, and mom was just elated. She loved this guy. But dad, not so much. And dads can be rough, right? You know, these are our little girls, and we can be kind of tough on guys that are coming along. And so this dad just didn't like this young gal, and, or this young guy, and And the daughter, I mean, she really, really valued her father's opinion and her parents' opinion. And so, you know, because her dad didn't like it, she ended up breaking it off. Well, a couple of months go by and she meets another guy. And this guy is everything that the first guy was, but he was athletic too. And she was athletic. So she really, really enjoyed that. And she thought her dad would just love this guy. I mean, her dad was a former college football player, but same thing happened. Mom loved the guy, dad not so much. Well, this happened several times after that. And every single time, it was the same way. Mom loved the guy, and dad didn't like the guy. But then one day, she met a guy that looked like her dad when her dad was young. He had the same personality. He had the same mannerisms. He was in almost every way a younger version of her father. And so after a few dates, she brings him home for dinner, and sure enough, dad loves him. Dad is just elated, like, this guy is awesome, you know, giving her the thumbs up, you know, when he can't see. But the problem was, mom didn't like him at all. (laughs) Well, that wouldn't have been the case with this guy. Both parents would have loved him. Both parents would have been excited. He's the whole package. He's the, the real deal. So that's the man. Let's consider now his approach. And here we see another man of prestige who is running to meet Jesus. And like I mentioned last week, men in that culture, especially men of power and prestige, they didn't run. I mean, picture a guy in a three-piece suit. He's got his wingtip shoes on and he's running down the street. I mean, we would look at that and go, that is odd. I mean, what is going on? What's the sense of urgency? Well, that's what's happening here. This guy has a sense of urgency. There's a question on his heart that he must get answered. And so he comes running up to Jesus. And then it also tells us that he knelt down before Jesus. And again, that was unusual. It shows his humility. It shows his respect. But again, just to give you a picture of how odd this would be, Jesus was not considered to be a part of the religious establishment. I mean, it wasn't like he was considered to be part of the religious hierarchy. In fact, all the religious hierarchy in in Israel, around that area, they didn't like Jesus. They were plotting to kill Jesus. Jesus didn't go around, you know, dressed up in rabbi garb like the other rabbis. I mean, he just looked normal. And so this would be, just picture this, this is your dignified grandfather. Or this is your dignified boss coming and kneeling down before a hippie, okay? That's what this would look like to them. This is how odd this would be to those who are watching this scene unfold. And this young guy comes, and he's kneeling down, and he he has this question. And his question is, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, understand this. When the Jewish people talked about eternal life, they weren't just thinking in terms of a quantity of life, longevity. They always thought of eternal life in the scope of not just longevity, but quality. Not just quantity, but quality. Quality. 
They believed that there was a quality of life, and that tells us something, an interesting lesson here, that the things that our culture says that we should pursue and acquire are the things that aren't going to bring lasting satisfaction, because this guy had it all. He had all of those things, and yet he realizes there's something that is missing. And so he's coming to Jesus, and he's asking this question, what shall I do that I might have eternal life? And again, I want you to notice the premise of his question, what shall I do? His question is the question asked by every religious person, by every cult member, by every non-believer who refuses the salvation that God offers through Jesus, it's always this question, what do I need to do? I know I need to do something in order to get to heaven. I know I need to do something in order to be right with God. What do I need to do? R. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark, describes this scene in this way. He says, the original language indicates that he expected Jesus to prescribe some great deed that he could do which would settle things with God once and for all. From his point of view, he was certainly had the ability and will to do whatever would be required just as he always did. We would call this guy a can-do kind of guy. And that's what he's asking. What do I need to do? Just tell me because I can do it. I want you to also notice that he addresses Jesus here as good teacher. And I think this is very, very interesting because in the original language, he uses a word for good. It's the word agathos in the Greek that means intrinsically good inherently good in quality. It's a word that carries the idea of that which is profitable, useful, and benefiting others. We might use the term benevolent. Agathos is used in the New Testament primarily of spiritual and moral excellence in its highest form. And I mention that because it gives us some insight into the response of Jesus. Because Jesus asked this question, why do you call me good? And we could add, why do you call me good in that way? Only God is that good. So in essence, Jesus is saying, when you call me good, do you really understand what you're saying? Do you really understand what you are implying? Only God is that good. So are you saying that I'm on par with God? It's like Jesus is giving him a hint here. Are you saying that I am God, excuse me, in human flesh? Jesus is going to proceed to give this young man an instruction That will be followed by a confrontation, a statement of confrontation, and then a statement of invitation. And I think it's very interesting the way that Jesus deals with this young man. Let's first of all consider the instruction. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud and honor your father and mother. Now pay attention to this. Jesus doesn't mention here the first four commandments. And the first four commandments had everything to do with his relationship with God. The first four commandments have everything to do with his heart. The first four commandments are, you shall have no other gods before me, that you shall make no 
idol for yourselves, that you should not use the name of the Lord your God, and that you remember the Sabbath day. These first four commandments in the law of God have to do with man's relationship with God. No other gods before him, that he is first and foremost in our lives. No idols, nothing else in our lives above him, that we're to honor his name and we're to honor his day. The first four commandments deal with heart issues. And we're going to see that this man's problem was a heart problem. You see, there were some things in his life that were in a greater place in his life than his relationship with God. And Jesus is going to bring him to this revelation, but he's going to do it slowly. And so what Jesus does here is Jesus focuses on commandments 5 through 10. And these commandments have everything to do with his relationship with others, with how he treats other people. And I I want you to notice how this young man responds in verse 20. He says, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And then Matthew's gospel adds that he said, but what else am I lacking? It's like, I've been a good person, but I know I'm lacking something else. And I just want to say this. I don't believe this guy was blowing smoke here. I don't think he's this selfish or, you know, self-righteous, prideful individual. And I say that because of the way that, what it tells us in verse 21 of how Jesus viewed him. Notice it says, then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus is looking at this guy. He's not seeing a self-righteous, arrogant. He sees a guy who is sincere. He sees a guy that truly has been trying to be a good person and do the right things. He's a good person. He's a religious person. He's living each day trying to do what is right. And you know what? That's the story of some of you in this room right now. That's you. Some of you watching online. You're a good person. You're a religious person. You might even say that, that you have a love for God. But despite all that, you know that there's something that's missing. There's something that's lacking. There's a void in your heart, and you sense it, and you know it, and you're unsettled. Let me ask you a question. How many of you here have come before coming to Calvary or before coming to a, a Protestant church or before becoming a Christian? How many of you were uh, that came out of a Catholic background? Show of hands. Okay, quite a few of you. And that doesn't surprise me. Because you see, Catholic people in general have a love for God. But the problem is, is most Catholic churches don't teach the Bible. And so what happens is a lot of people grow up thinking that in order to be saved, in order to be right with God, it's about being a good person. It's about being a religious person. It's about following the rules and taking the classes and doing all of these things. But it's interesting, when a Catholic person gets exposed to the Bible, something happens in their hearts. And suddenly they begin to realize that, hey, it's not about religion, it's about relationship. You see, religion says, do, do these things in order to be saved. But the gospel says, it's done. The gospel says that Jesus on the cross cried, it is finished. 
It's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus did. And Jesus is about to invite this young man, this young, rich, young ruler into a relationship. But before the invitation, he's going to confront this young man. And in doing so, Jesus is going to reveal what really has this young, man heart, young man's heart. And there's a lesson in this for us. And the lesson is this, that true love confronts. True love is not afraid to confront. Again, notice verse 21. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, here's the confrontation, one thing you lack, go Go your way and sell whatever you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then here's the invitation. He says, and come, take up the cross and follow me. So the confrontation, Jesus says, hey, go your way and sell whatever you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Now, why does Jesus say this to this man? Is Jesus against wealth? No. Many of the people that are held up as examples for us in Scripture were men of wealth. Abraham had wealth. David had wealth. Job had wealth. Many of the kings in the Old Testament were men of wealth. Joseph of Arimathea, who let Jesus use his tomb to be buried in, was a wealthy man. Jesus is not against wealth. The Bible doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. What does it say? The love of money. That's the problem. The love of money is the root of all evil, and this is going to be the problem, or is the problem with this young man. He loved his stuff. He loves his wealth. And so Jesus, because he loves this young man, is going to pinpoint the very thing that has his heart. And Jesus does the same thing in our lives. Because he loves us, he will pinpoint the very things that have our hearts. The things that run the risk of taking the place of God in our lives. Now to me this is significant. Now I don't want you to miss this. Jesus is not satisfied that this guy is a good guy. Note that. Jesus is not satisfied that this guy is a religious guy. And I think this is something that all of us need to take note of. Jesus is not satisfied that you are a good person. God is not satisfied with your goodness. The Bible says that our righteousness, our goodness, is like filthy rags before the Lord, before a holy God. And the fact of the matter is, no matter how good we are, we're still sinners. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If you could be good enough, Jesus wouldn't have had to die. But he did. Because the Bible says that there's none who are good enough. No, not one. Your sin and my sin needed to be dealt with. And Jesus left heaven and came to this earth and went to the cross to deal with our sin. To die on the cross to pay the price for our sin. 
Because being religious is not good enough. You need to have a relationship with God. And that relationship only comes through faith in Jesus and his finished work on the cross and then his resurrection from the dead to give life to anyone who would put their hope and trust in him. And I want to say something here to all the parents in the room. Any of you parents that are watching online. And I want to just preface by saying, I say this out of love. I say this with all due respect. You see, I meet parents all the time who will say things like this to me. I'll say, you know, my son, my daughter, they're, they're not really walking with the Lord right now. They're not really going to church. They're not really following Jesus. And then they'll say, but they're good kids. They're good kids. And you know, I get that sentiment. I really do. And we want to hope the best for our kids. And sometimes when our kids are adults, it's hard to talk to them. It's hard to, you know, they don't want to listen to us. And sometimes I'll see kids, you know, that have walked away from the Lord. They're not walking with the Lord at all. And their parents will be like, oh, but they're, they're good kids kids, and I just want to say this to all of us here who are parents, don't live in denial. We cannot be satisfied that our kids are good kids. We can't be satisfied with their morality. We can't be satisfied with the fact that, you know, they went to school and they got a degree and they have a great job and they're doing fantastic on an earthly level. We can be proud about that, but we can't be just satisfied with the fact that they're good and that they're moral because we need to be concerned about their souls. We need to be concerned about their eternity. And I say this with, with love. Do not be content that your kids are good kids. I'll never forget this. In fact, we just heard from this friend a couple days ago. She reminded us of this day. And dear friends of ours who used to be in our church and moved to Oregon, their son was killed in an automobile accident. And they really didn't know where he was at spiritually. He'd been up and down and all over the place in his walk. And at the time, they just didn't really know if he was really walking, had been walking with the Lord. And, and so the day of the memorial service came and the church was packed. Tons of his friends. Guys that he partied with and, and you know, kids that had been in Christian school but weren't walking with the Lord. They, they were here. And as a pastor, that's always a, a difficult setting to be in. Because you want to be respectful to the parents, but you also want to, you want to share the truth, you know. Well, I didn't have to worry about it that day because Julie, the mom, got up and she preached. I didn't even need to give a message when she was done. I mean, she preached. And she said to all of these kids, she said, I just want to say this. She goes, I don't know where my son is at today. And it kills me. She goes, I hope he's in heaven. I mean, he knew the truth, but, but I don't know. 
And then she warned all of these young people, all of his friends, as she asked the question, she said, are you ready to stand before God? It's a good question. It's a good question for all of us to ask. The Bible says that tomorrow is promised to no man. You might get in a car accident today. Do you know where you'd go? And why? Are you thinking, oh yeah, I'd go to heaven. I'm a good person. I'm a religious person. I tithe. I, you know, no. Do you know God? Have you given your heart to Jesus? Have you really truly embraced Jesus? When we see all this stuff going on over in Ukraine right now, and it's just another indication that we are living in the latter days. If the rapture happened today, would you be taken or would you be left behind? Do you know? Would your kids be taken or would they be left behind? And I say that to say this, parents, we need to be those who are praying for our kids and pleading with the Lord for our kids. And again, I know when they become adults, all my kids are are adults, and I know when they become adults, sometimes it's hard to be able to speak into their lives. We need to plead. We need to pray. We need to have a sense of urgency. Jesus was not content with this guy's morality. With his religiosity, he was concerned for his soul. And the same thing is true today. If you're here today and you really don't know Jesus and you're banking on, I'm a good person, I'm a religious person, Jesus is not impressed with your morality or your religiosity. But he's concerned about your soul. And I say this again, just from a heart of love, but it's, it's a sad truth. There are a lot of good people and religious people who are in hell today. It's the fact. Because they've never really embraced Jesus. And if you haven't embraced Jesus, I, I hope you do before we're done today. So Jesus confronts the problem, and then he gives this invitation, which is really a call to discipleship when he says, and come, take up the cross and follow me. That phrase, take up the cross, to me is really, really interesting because we usually look at that phrase from this side of Calvary. We look at it from the post-crucifixion, and we think that what Jesus is saying is that we need to be willing to deny ourselves in order to live for him. And that is true. That is a part of that message. But sometimes we can oversimplify it. And I want you to think about this. None of the people listening to Jesus in this moment, talking to this young man, they didn't know that Jesus was going to the cross. They didn't know what was going to happen to him, but they fully understood what Jesus was saying here. It would make total sense to them because the people, for the people of that day, the cross was a very concrete and vivid reality because it was the instrument of execution reserved for Rome's worst enemies. And the Romans would crucify their victims outside of cities and along the roadside. And it was a statement that they were making that basically was saying, this is what happens to anybody who defies Rome. This is what happens to anybody who won't declare that Caesar is Lord. And the estimates, it's estimated that 
30,000 Jewish people were crucified during the time, the lifetime of Christ. So when Jesus told this man to take up his cross, this man and everyone else listening would have understood what Jesus was saying, that Jesus was calling him into a new lifestyle, that rather than seeking prosperity and ease, that he would understand to follow Christ, he must be willing to endure persecution and rejection and hardship and even potential martyrdom for the sake of following Christ. In other words, he was was calling him to count the cost. Many people today want a no-cost discipleship. Jesus offers no such thing. Christ does not call people to himself to make their lives easy and prosperous, but to make them holy and productive. And this man's life, he was, he was probably well respected and looked up to in the religious community there in Israel. And Jesus was inviting him, asking him if he would be willing to become an outcast. Because that's what he would become in following after Jesus. How many of you remember the phrase seeker sensitive? How many remember that phrase? The seeker sensitive movement. You remember that? Back in the 90s, that was really, really popular. Seeker-sensitive movement. And a lot of churches that were going down that road, they, they, would, they would say that in order to appeal to the seeker, we need to make sure that we don't do anything that might confuse them or offend them. And so because of that, we're not going to talk about sin at church. We're not going to talk about the cross. We're not going to talk about blood because all that's confusing and it can be offensive. Can I just tell you, Jesus didn't follow that strategy. He's confrontational here. I mean, he's getting in this, you know, he's making this guy uncomfortable here. He's going to challenge the very things that will hinder us from giving ourselves fully to God. It was Timothy Keller who said this, If your God never disagrees with you, you might be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. (laughs) That's so true. God is confrontive because true love confronts, and he loves us, friends. And so he's going to confront anything that, that, that gets in the way of us being truly surrendered to him. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's inviting this man to take up the cross. He's inviting him to count the cost in following after him. And then he gives the second part of this invitation. He says, and follow me. And I love this because this is an invitation into relationship. When Jesus says, follow me, catch this. He's not saying, like, walk after me. Like, I'm going this way and you follow behind at a distance. No, no, no. It's more of an invitation to accompany him. It's like Jesus saying, walk with me. Come on, walk with me. It's an invitation for relationship. And that's what he's most interested in. That's why he left heaven. He wants relationship with us. Sin had destroyed our relationship with God. And Jesus came to fix that and make a way for man to be able to walk with God once again. Like it said of Adam, Adam walked with God in the garden, but then sin destroyed that. And Jesus is now saying, hey, walk with me. It's an invitation into relationship and intimacy. 
But Jesus knew that in order for this man to truly follow him, there would be a cost. He would have to give up the very thing that had his heart. What's the cost for you? Jesus is inviting you today into a deeper, more intimate relationship with him. But in order to do that, what's the cost? What's the thing that that maybe just has so much of the occupation of your time and your heart and your affection? See, this is even applicable to us. But I want you to also notice the promise. He says, and you will have treasure in heaven. And this is such an amazing promise that he's basically saying, obedience in the temporal now on earth will yield fruit in the eternal future in heaven. You know, Jim Elliott, that missionary who lost his life bringing the gospel to the Aka Indians, before he went to bring the gospel to these native violent tribes, he said this, he is not a fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep. Guys, do you realize all the stuff that we have that's so precious to us, we can't keep that. None of us are pulling U-Hauls into heaven, all right? We leave it all behind. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And that's why I'm always reminding you guys, later is longer. Eternity is forever. And that's what's real. This life, it's the prologue to our stories. It's the introduction to our story. But, but what's promised to us is heaven. And then Jesus comes back and we come back with him and we're ruling and reigning. It's a thousand years and then it's eternity after that with him. That's our story. That's the real story that Jesus invites us into. And we need to understand the treasure that awaits us is so much better and greater than anything that this life can offer us. I'll close with this. William Gladstone served as the British Prime Minister four times during the latter half of the 19th century. Gladstone was a committed Christian. One day, Gladstone was approached by an admiring college student. And Gladstone asked him, hey, what do you hope to do when you graduate from college? The young man replied, I hope to attend law school, sir, just as you did. Gladstone said, that's, that's great. That's a noble goal. But what then? He says, well, I hope to practice law and make a good name for myself, defending the poor and the outcasts of society, just as you did. And again, Gladstone replied, that's a noble purpose. But what then? Well, sir, I hope to one day stand for parliament and become a servant of the people, even as you did. And again, Gladstone said, that's a noble hope. But what then? He says, well, I hope to be able to serve in parliament with great distinction and and evidencing integrity and concern and justice, even as you did. And Gladstone said, okay, that's great, but then what? And this guy was ambitious. He says, well, I hope to serve in government as the prime minister with the same vigor and dedication and vision and integrity that you did. And, And again, Gladstone said, that's great, but then what? He says, well, I hope to retire with honors and write my memoirs, even as you are doing right now, so that others can learn from both my mistakes and my triumphs. And Gladstone again said, okay, that's great, but then what? And the young man thought for a moment, he says, well, I suppose after that, I die. 
And Gladstone said, that's correct. And then what? (laughs) And the young man paused for a few minutes and says, well, sir, I've actually never given that any thought. And Gladstone says, here's my advice to you. Go home and read your Bible and think about eternity. It's good advice. Because, guys, eternity is forever. Later is longer. And we're all going to spend eternity somewhere, either with God, with Jesus, or separated from him. The story we see here in verse 22 has a sad ending. This young man walks away sad, sorrowful, because he had a lot of stuff and he didn't want to give it up. He couldn't count the cost. And we don't know how this young man's story ends. We don't know. He just kind of falls off the pages of Scripture, and we don't know anything else about him. We don't know how his story ends, but you can know how yours is going to end. If you have that sense and assurance in your heart that you are right with God, that you know Jesus, that you're living in relationship with Jesus, you know how your story ends, that, hey, the best is yet to come. In fact, it's been said, and I've said this before, that if you're not a Christian here today, this world, it's as good as it gets for you. It's all downhill from here. But if you know Jesus today and you're living in a relationship with Jesus today, this world is as bad as it gets for you. It's only uphill from here. It only gets better. The best is yet to come if you know Jesus. And that's the question. Do you know Jesus? Are you ready to stand before God? If today your number was called.